0: On July 23, 2012, SDCF Producing Director Ellen Rosconi spoke with Director Stafford Arima and director-choreographer Christopher Wyndham to discuss developing new musicals. This discussion was hosted by the New York Musical Theater Festival. Hello, I'm Laura Penn, Executive Director of SDC, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program may not have been initially recorded for the purposes of broadcast, it may not be of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast.
1: You all have a copy of Stafford and Christopher's bios in front of you, um, but if you could each maybe give a, a you know a synopsis of your careers, so that or your career trajectories, that would be great.
2: Wonderful. Uh, I'm Christopher Wyndham. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, I started dancing when I was 12, so my path to directing and choreographing really was born of a life as a performer. I went to undergrad at Webster University, got my BFA in musical theater. I was very determined to be a celebrated performer. So I moved to New York City, and uh, fortunately, I had a pretty good career as a performer, dancing on Broadway and national tours and regional theater. Uh, Throughout that career, I started to get opportunities to choreograph, so I was balancing this life of performer and choreographer, which is pretty typical. Uh, But then I started to get uh, opportunities to direct and those were great opportunities that I didn't feel like I could completely master so I took some time and went to grad school at Brown Trinity Rep and got my master's in directing uh, and that's where I learned a lot about how to read a play uh, because as a performer or as a dancer you're not typically in the room with the director you're in the room with the choreographer and so you're not really Uh, Tuned to that sort of language of a director, how to communicate to actors, how to tell a story with a choreographer. It's uh, I do, you do. I do, you do. Okay, do it with a flex foot. All right, do it to the left. All right, let's move on. There's not much discussion, but when you're dealing with text and stories, of course, actors have questions and instincts that they need to navigate and craft. Uh, So that time at grad school was a very, very valuable time. Uh, to put into my arsenal as a theater artist. Uh, Since graduating, I've been very fortunate to uh, work consistently, um, sometimes assisting, uh, sometimes choreographing, and sometimes directing, and sometimes doing (laughs) all of the above. (laughs) Um, uh, Which leads me to uh, the project that I did for Nymph most recently, Central Avenue Breakdown, uh, that I directed and choreographed last summer, and we were chosen to go to Korea to perform there. And we were invited back for an Encores production here at Nymph, so that is a very recent experience of developing a new musical. There are lots of peaks and valleys (laughs) within that journey, but those are the big bullet points. I'm uh, Stafford Arima,
3: uh, originally from Toronto, Canada, uh, and I moved here uh, in 1997 when I was uh, the resident director of a, a Broadway show called Ragtime. And uh, I, I've always said to people that uh, who have a dream to perform or to design or to write or to direct that um, if I can do it, then anyone can do it. <laughs> and and the reason I say that is because, you know, I'm, I'm literally a kid from Toronto who grew up in the suburbs of Canada. Um, I didn't have a green card. I didn't have wealthy parents who could afford to, you know, get a home for me here in New York. I didn't have an uncle who uh, worked at the Schubert's. I didn't have any connection to any... Thing business-wise uh, to theater, I just loved the theater and I loved musicals. And so, if a kid from Toronto can actually come down to this country and make a living and make his dreams possible, then it really can happen for anybody. Uh, and like my colleague here, it there are is an amazing journey of how one can you know realize those dreams. And my story is probably complete opposite of my colleagues is complete opposite of so many of you in this room but we're all here because we have a passion for telling stories and to hopefully heal with those stories so um i'm just uh i'm in awe and in in a kind of a sense of honor to be in a room with uh, a group of directors and choreographers and artists who really want to Make a difference through this art form. So that's my little story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what were and you did a lot with live event in the beginning of your career. Was that the beginning
4: of your career really? Yes, when when
3: I was in Toronto, there was a a theater company um, that was run by a man named Garth Drabinsky, who was the producer of such great shows as Ragtime, Parade, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Fosse, the revival of Showboat, um, and So I was in Toronto going to school, and for my summer job, I thought, why not work for this company, because it would allow me to be in the kind of energy of a commercial uh, theatrical producing um, kind of extravaganza. And uh, so that's kind of where I got a lot of my original kind of training, I guess. I started off as a a receptionist. Um, I remember... I was in school and there was an advertisement in the Toronto Star for um uh, a receptionist for a large entertainment firm. And it didn't say Live Ent, it didn't say Garth Dravinsky, it didn't say anything, but I thought, oh, large entertainment firm, receptionist. So I and I, I remember my mother said to me, You shouldn't go you shouldn't go after that job. And I remember saying to her why and she said, Well, You might as well, it's better to start smaller, like start at a smaller theater company or a smaller firm, but for a large entertainment company, you know. And I didn't really understand that philosophy, so I said, I I kind of disregarded that, and I went to this interview and I met with Jan Swenson. She was the office manager of this entertainment firm, which was LiveEnt, and uh, she said, she was a New Yorker and she was very abrupt and she, she said, hello, and she said, uh, do you know how to use a Meridian SL1 switchboard? <laughs> and of course I didn't, but I said yes. Uh, and uh, she said, well, do you know anything about theater? And I said, yes, and I said a little bit of thing. And so she said, you're, you're hired. So I started my work at LiveVent uh, answering phones. I didn't know how to use this switchboard at all. Um, I started the job on a Monday. I called all of my friends. I went in early, tried to, you know, (laughs) figure out how to work this thing. And the interesting story, the bookend to that story is I started as a receptionist when Garth had kind of created this company of his in Toronto. And the last person on the payroll of LiveVent, and I don't know if you know, but it went through a lot of scandal and drama, and it, the company was taken over by other companies, Clear Channel, and but the last person on the payroll was me. <laughs> I was the resident director of Ragtime, and over the three, four years of all this scandal, um, they had fired and let go of everyone basically in the company except the original receptionist. So I always say, always beware of the receptionist because you never know. (laughs) And was your
1: mother happy that you were eventually working for a very small firm, actually? Yes, (laughs) yes, yes,
3: my mother was, yes, I think my mother was very cautious about that. So she, um, but I, 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 I owe a lot to that company for giving me some wonderful experience.
1: Well, so we're here today to discuss developing musicals, and you've each worked on many, many, many new musicals in various types of production venues, both um, in New York and outside of New York and and internationally, um, in festivals and regional theater and New York developmental productions um, in recent years. At what point do you typically get involved in a project, and how do you usually become involved with the project?
2: Well... There's no such thing as typical in theater, (laughs) Um, first of all, I think. uh, But because every project has its own needs and demands in their own way, I mean, of course, ideally you're getting a good heads-up maybe months or even a year in advance that something is coming down the pike. But then there's also that chance where uh, rehearsals start in three weeks and Mm -hmm. someone has bowed out or something has happened where uh, they need Mm -hmm. someone to come fill that role as director or choreographer or assistant or whatever. Um, so the idea of typical is, is very interesting. Ideally it would be uh, you get that notice well in advance so uh, that the project is happening. Uh, here is the first draft of the script and then ideally there would be some meetings and discussions with the writers and the composer whoever's involved in um, developing what's going to be on paper uh, to be in conversation with them. Uh, I love those conversations, the chance to pick their brains, to see where this juice is coming from, where this idea is born from, and how they even envision the piece happening. Um, Those little details become very important uh, when they marry with my vision, or what I can do, what my skill set as an artist is about. So that becomes the fun part, the collaboration. But a lot of it is, um, for me, uh, letting the writers and the composers lead the way a little bit um, so that uh, have a good sense of what direction they were intending the piece to go and then gaining their trust and then taking the lead and being side by side and all of those analogies one could make about what collaboration is. Mm-hmm. So initially it would be, bottom line, those conversations about the piece, what it's born from and and where they hope it to Hope that it can go.
1: And how about
3: you, Steph? Uh I think it's it. You know, varies. You know, sometimes uh, you're in a very fortunate position to be asked to be invited into a process where someone says, "I have an idea of a script, or there is a script draft one or two. We'd like you to direct it, or we'd like you at least to take a look at it." Um, that happens, at least for me, rarely. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not sitting at home kind of fielding calls, <laughs> um, you know I'm, I, I, you know I, I have found for me that the most um, kind of productive way is when one generates one's uh, projects mm. and when one has an idea, uh, I'm not a writer but one might have an idea of a story that one wants to tell or of a show that was perhaps maligned many years ago and the idea of wanting to relook at it. Um, so okay. I I have found that, you know, when, when Alter Boys happened in 2004 and, you know, must say that it was birthed from the nymph, uh, I, I did the show and, you know, it was a success and it, it, you know, lasted a nice four and a half years off Broadway. And I probably had the... Miss kind of alignment or misinterpretation that oh well if it's a success then that means things are going to happen or things are going to be easier Uh, and they really weren't and so I found myself in a position to figuring out well if people aren't going to pick up the phone and call then if I want to work then I have to do my I have to develop my own ideas or figure out projects that I'm interested in and approach authors or approach teams to bring that, that to life. So, you know, yes, it's, it, it sometimes happens where someone will call and say, we're interested in you doing something. Um, my mother's lesbian Jewish Wiccan wedding that was at the Nymph last year was a call that I got from, these Canadian writers who knew of me and said, we'd like you to look at this show. But really, that happens very rarely. And it happens rarely that someone will give you an opportunity to read something and that you feel connected to it. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've learned that if I'm not feeling connected to a piece, that it's probably in the best interest of the piece not to do it. Even though it might be an interesting idea, but if it doesn't connect inside, then it's probably best to let it go and have someone else, someone in this room,
2: connect with it because it, it doesn't connect with me. That takes a lot of perception too, to know who you are as an artist and what you have to say. And when you're being introduced to a piece, to be able to, I don't know, have the guts to say no thank you. Because sometimes as an artist, you really want to take whatever can come your way. But there is danger in that. Um, I feel fortunate and unique in that a lot of the pieces and projects that come my way are pretty geared towards my skill set. Like, my skill set is so specific um, that anything that comes my way is really kind of right up my alley. So, um, that's fortunate for me. And a lot of that, you were talking about life and a lot of, and the sort of appreciation you have for that entity. And I have appreciation for them too, in a different sense. I was a part of that musical Fosse, um, which was uh, being a part of a developing musical uh, from a different uh, point of view, being um, a performer in that piece, but also learning, um, how do you say, uh, how the temperature changes as the piece develops. Mm -hmm. And the skills that I got from that piece as a performer, as an artist, the detail of storytelling through movement, through choreography, was just infused into my life as an artist. And it really informs how I interact with text, how I interpret story, that sense of physicality. So I have appreciation for those beginning moments as well as being around developing musicals um, because today it really has shaped uh, how I interact with pieces.
1: Can you give a specific example from Fosse about something you learned that, like,
2: oh, I know that's going to
1: take a- <laughs>
2: <laughs> It takes grit to be an artist. Um, something specific is rolling with the punches and seriously to have have grit. Uh, uh, I think uh, as uh, writers will say, composers will say, um, You know, you have to be comfortable killing the baby, Uh, that's a very drastic sort of term, Or, 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 or plucking the tree or something like that. But it is really the process of writing something or creating something and finding that it's not going to benefit the whole. So how do you let go of that precious little jewel? And you see it all the time in in developing pieces. In Central Avenue Breakdown, for example, there is a song, I love that song, called Asses in the Seat." And uh, last minute, we took it out of the piece to benefit the story. And well, anyway, you have a little prayer with yourself uh, about that moment. But with Fosse, it was such a day-to-day effort of um, seeing a piece go in, seeing a piece come out, seeing someone perform in this Number Oh, now it's this person. And it's really um, uh, having the grit to, and the strength to really deal with those and um, not let it hold you down, mm-hmm. not let it um, scare you or, or, or not feel defeated uh, by the process of, of the show growing and expanding. And that's what happens when a piece goes from one level to the next level. Different things have to be implemented, and different ideas have to be included, and um, and other ideas get left behind. And if you get too attached to uh, former ideas, then you're never giving yourself the chance to move forward and to grow and expand as the piece is growing and expanding. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so when you when you do come on board, you know at various stages, what is kind of what do you like to happen quick to make happen quickly? Or soon thereafter. I shouldn't say quickly, but soon thereafter. Kind of, what are your first moves? And I'm sure that's dependent upon the piece. But um, what makes you feel like you're moving forward?
3: Meaning before you're hired to get no, the job or you're hired. to
1: after? After you're hired, um, who are the people you get like to get in place quickly? If if they're if the if the creative team isn't assembled yet.
3: Um, I, I guess for me it would be. depending if we were going into workshop or reading mode, then I would probably have the musical director would be the first person to bring on board. If we were going into production, uh, it probably would be the choreographer uh, and the musical director, but most likely the musical director probably would have been on on board if we had done some developmental work. Um, Because for me, the choreographer, because I'm not like my colleague, I don't do both, that becomes a very integral kind of relationship that um, one has to really be kind of on the same page, and so that's uh, for me. Be the choreographer, I think, would be the first person if we were going into production.
2: Mm. I would say, in my experience, and uh, very fresh experience, again, there's hasn't been a typical situation, but is really. Uh, For me, figuring out what the venue, is it going to be a nymph, is it going to be a workshop, is it going to be a reading, and then uh, deciding what are going to be the necessary steps to make that reading happen, or to make that uh, showcase happen, or to make that workshop happen. For me, yes, I hire myself as the choreographer, and then I'm done, (laughs) I get to deal with me all a rehearsal process, but uh, sometimes uh, someone from the design team comes first because the piece is so specific and I know the sliding designer is really going to understand the language of that piece, and so we'll start with you and then things will build around that, or sometimes it is the musical director and then things build around that, and then some other fun things happen where the musical director knows this designer and then you start to collaborate with them, so they're bringing someone on board and uh, you create this little family together, which like branches like a tree, um, um, or, or sometimes a cast, uh, an actor gets cast um, prior to any decision that gets made. So then things uh, build around that decision. So yeah, I think that's part of the fun. It's like whenever, whatever that project is, and uh, just kind of going along with the. I call it plinko from. <laughs> The Price is Right, that little team <laughs> where you start here and it just falls down. You never quite know where it's going <laughs> to land. But once, it's, once it lands, you can make decisions from there, and that takes flexibility and, and confidence that uh, every decision you make is going to be the right decision, or you're going to make it the right decision. Right. So.
1: And do you typically work with the same teams or with certain members of your team?
2: No, you
3: vary I mean, it up? It, I, I vary it up. I mean, I, I've, I've been... I, I do enjoy working with um, a, uh, a group of people, and you know that that kind of um, that selection gets larger and larger as you work with more you know different people. I, I come from a the belief that there is um, for each piece there is a unique voice that um, can contribute to that specific show, and sometimes there are wonderful choreographers, designers who. Yes, could probably do any show, but sometimes there are specific people who have more of a, f- of a, a flavor mm-hmm. of a certain in a certain world. And sometimes um, it's kind of fun to work with new people. Um, the last couple of shows I've done, I've actually worked with new people that I've never worked with before, and it's challenging because you have to create a brand new shorthand, mm-hmm. um, but... There's something I- exciting about just collaborating with that kind of fresh spirit and, and knowing that, you know, they're
2: excited about this process. And so it, it varies, at least for me. Sure. And I will say what's fun for me is that I'm not quite at a place where I can always choose my creative team. Uh, so sometimes they are assigned to me. Um, yeah, or, you know, maybe the costume designer is assigned because I'm going to a specific theater company and they have a resident costume designer. All of those fun things. But uh, I em- learned to embrace those things. It's is born from my uh, beginning days as a choreographer where I would go into a project and perhaps the director has cast the show um, without con- consulting or it's a situation where I came in, was invited late into the process, or it's a or or for whatever reason there are cast decisions made so as a choreographer you walk into the room and you try to figure out who can dance and no one can dance but (laughs) be grateful for your own experience as an actor and a storyteller and you create story through movement which has become one of my signatures um uh, but that, to me, is, was the beginnings of that, really just dealing with what is handed to you and creating magic from that, so I get really comfortable with that, so I'm looking forward to the day where I can absolutely have say across the board <laughs> and, you know, have some people in my back pocket that i love to play with, so, <laughs> so.
1: So you've both done some work at Nymph. Um, let's talk about Nymphs specifically. Um, how have you found Nymph to be helpful in developing work? And festivals
3: in general. Uh, I mean, Alter Boys, um, we, we did it on the very first Nymph. So I think, you know, mm. it was, the whole festival was new. So it was mm. it was kind of beautifully chaotic. And um, I think Nymph was trying to figure out how it was running. So it was just all madness. But in the end, it gave Alter Boys an opportunity to be seen, and to uh, allow us to put something on a stage, to allow to hear kind of a public response. Later, my mother's lesbian Jewish Wiccan wedding, there you know, the machine of the nymph was very well oiled, and things were put in place, so it it actually was a much smoother journey, um, in the sense of just all of the dealings with. You know, striking your set and all of that kind of stuff that happens. Um, but I think inevitably, in any festival, whether it's the NAMT or the Nymph or a fringe festival, is, is so beneficial because if you have authors who are excited about learning from the process, then it just allows your piece to continue to grow. If you have authors that are not as interested in, That process, then it kind of becomes uh, it. It just becomes a dead weight because Mm. then there's no. I I remember when we did Alter Boys. I said to the 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 authors at the time is I said, no matter what happens uh, after our first performance, you promise me that you won't ever say to me, "Well, they liked it at the Nymph. We can't change that, or we we won't cut that because everyone liked it yesterday night." Because it was really important to, for for at least for me to make sure that they were on board with this is just one step in the process this isn't the end we're going to learn from this, and yes, the audience might go crazy and stand up, but we still have to be we have to be disciplined to keep looking at this material and making sure that we're 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 giving it its fair share and fair due so it i'm I'm all for any opportunity like a Nymph festival that allows a piece to grow.
2: Yeah, Nymph is helpful. I feel um, you were there at the beginning and uh, our piece uh, began last year so I feel like maybe it, Nymph has become this sort of well-loyaled machine. You know? um, so for me it was just a matter of getting on the train and going for the ride. Of course, each project is its own uh, sort of world and production. Uh, but when you're assigned a venue, you are also collaborating with two or three other productions because you're dealing with storage space, you're dealing with lighting plots, you're dealing with all of these things that you end up sharing, and also things you may not know that you may need to share. There are these email chains that go around. Hey, we need a gurney in our show. Does anyone else need a gurney in their show? Because then we could go and split the cost on that. So, uh, Directing can be a lonely business, so when you have something like a... Festival, you are instantly in contact with mm-hmm. other people who are focused on their projects, but if you have a way of opening them up and opening yourself up, you can be quite uh, collaborative as far as like going through the process together and being supportive of each other. That is one way I found Nymph to be helpful. Mm-hmm. It was also helpful uh, because it gave... Limitations can be your friends. When you have a very specific lighting plot, uh, uh, that you, or a very specific space of the stage that you have to deal with, uh, then you have to be very clear or conscious with the story that you're going to tell. Uh, if you have the sky's the, the limit at the beginning of creating this play or this story, um, you may not discover something that you could once you have those limitations in space. When you have 12 actors uh, that you are budgeted to have, well, you have to tell the story with 12 actors, so how can you make this story happen with 12 actors? Mm -hmm. You become very creative with those limitations. Then when you revisit again, as I feel like I am now, you go, okay, I need more resources. But that's a good place to be. In the beginning, it was great to uh, uh, be confined to a specific amount, a specific time, a specific space, uh, uh, to give sort of boundaries and parameters to work. now it'll be more fun to figure out how to go beyond those boundaries it's it's also f- really fun to see how the boundaries
3: how some people can look at boundaries and feel that they are you know roadblocks or stumbling blocks and others can mm. find it really endearing when we did alter boys i had asked a, a lighting designer that i had worked with never as a director i was an assistant on a project and she was the lighting designer and um, she, uh, her name was Natasha Katz, Mm -hmm. and she, I I said to her, like, I have this show, would you, like, do it for me? And she was like, what is it called? And I said, Ultra Boys, and she laughed, and uh, she said, let me read it. Uh, And of course, you know, this is, again, like, who am I to ask a a Broadway, Tony Award-winning designer to come? And it was at the Puerto Rican Traveling Theater, and I think there were, you know, probably 10 lights, and she read it, and she thought it was fun. And I, I warned her. I said, you know, there, there might actually only be four lights. You know, I, I really tried to play it down. And she said, you know, it'll be, it'll be like going back to college. And so she came in with this spirit of, you know what, I, let's go back to how one used to do it when you didn't have four hundred thousand lights and all this rig and all this. You just, and so that was such an, for me, an inspiring thing to see that. You know, one doesn't maybe feel comfortable or confident asking certain people because you think, oh, they won't do it or it's out of my league or what, you know, but why not ask? And if, you know, she's smart enough to say, no, I can't do it, schedule commitments or whatever else, but if they say yes, then you get this extraordinary artist who's coming in and actually enjoying herself in the process of how to light a show with, you know, ten instruments.
1: And you have Natasha Katz designing your life. And, and yes,
3: <laughs> you have Natasha Katz designing your lights. Which so that's, you know... And again, you know, I was saying this to someone else the other day was don't be afraid to ask. You know, I think that's the, that's the biggest... We inhibit ourselves by not asking because we either are frightened of rejection or we're frightened that they're going to laugh at us or think well that's the most craziest thing why not ask and, and because the, the worst case scenario is that the designer is going to say no or the authors of a show say I don't want to revisit it but why not ask and if they say yes then it's, it's, a, it's kind of a win win situation
1: so you're you talk about you're both talking about boundaries and limitations in some respect, and um, do you feel that a festival allows you to work within those boundaries better than, say, a regional production or a workshop production does? I mean, is there any difference there? I think the
2: biggest difference between a festival and maybe a regional theater is um, the lack of preciousness. Um, uh, I think, from my experience, a festival is like, hey, whatever you're going to put out there, bring it. It may be the next new great radical thing Um, and typically a a regional theater may have a mission or a particular voice that they are trying to uh, espouse so uh, that creates a different kind of limitation so um, uh, if you're working at a theater that really has a mission for diversity so they're doing lots of works uh, by or for people of color um, that is going to be their voice but I feel like a festival is like Let's see what you've got. Anything goes. Uh,
3: I find. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, it's all part of the pot. <laughs> uh, and I think that if, if you get your show into the nymph or into a festival, then take that experience for all that it's worth and mine as much as you can out of it. And if you're lucky enough to get your show into a regional, then... Exactly the same thing. I, I my feeling is that just approach it all in the same way. Mm. Obviously there's maybe more money or more something in different situations, but in the end it's all about working the material and allowing us as directors, choreographers, designers to work it whether it's in this kind of a space or a larger space, so it's and again, even if you just do pizza reads, even I call them <laughs> pizza reads, even if you have seven pizza reads at someone's house, and you read the script over and over again over a three-month period, that's still valuable, That that's still figuring out how to crack this amazing puzzle of how to make a musical work.
2: Yeah, and whether you're, I feel, if you're in regional theater or a uh, festival, I mean, it really boils down to people just want to see a good story, you know and great acting, you know, they want to see those essential things, so as long as you go for that, I think we will be fine.
1: Um, What can you, what have you found that you can accomplish realistically, artistically, in a festival setting, or in the, you know, pre-production towards, going towards a festival setting?
2: Yeah, this is interesting, I mean, I guess I can speak very specifically as a director choreographer. you know, as a choreographer, I'll think, okay, there's eight counts. I'm going to need ten minutes to rehearse that after I teach it. Okay, that means if I have five numbers that I choreographed, I'm going to need this amount of time to revisit it and polish it and get it to where I think it will be something spectacular and worth worth seeing. So I do this sort of, believe it or not, time management thing in my head as far as like the ratio of scenes to songs to uh, dances that I choreographed. So for instance, in Central Avenue Breakdown, there's one number that really screams for choreography, but I held myself back from really exploding the choreography. And I didn't think of it as like, um, I was doing a bad thing as far as like bad artists, not really putting yourself in in there. I felt like I was being a responsible director choreographer saying there are so many other delightful and beautiful moments that really deserve my attention. And this can, really tell the story with this simple gesture. Knowing that in the back of my head in the future, when I revisit that, when we have more resources, not just money, but time, um, that I will make that piece like really sing and really soar. So that's something that happens, this sort of negotiation with yourself. Where can you spend time, and or with myself, where can I spend time, and where can I uh, make a simple gesture that tells the story? Uh, but that gets us through the entire rehearsal process so that you're getting the whole thing on its feet as opposed to fighting for um, that one little thing that may end up holding the whole process back.
3: I think that because there's a time constraint on, you know, it's a two week rehearsal, I, I, I think that this, if, if everyone on board is in the spirit of, it this is like, this is just like, we're in the trenches, this isn't, you know, come to at ten leave at six the, this is begin at seven finish at midnight and then do emails from twelve to three mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it, it, like like it, if, if the if the team is on that kind of same page then you can get so much more um, out of again the, the, the experience yeah. I, I think that a danger would be just to and and every show is different so at least for me, I would, I would not come into a situation like this and just put up one draft and then polish it and make sure it's perfect because you learn so much after your first read-through. You learn so much after just looking at Act 1 up on its feet, Act 2. And on Wick and Wedding, we were cutting and changing like right to the bitter end. Mm-hmm. And um, the they people didn't necessarily appreciate that. And I don't have, you know, it's not like people like that. Some people don't want to work past twelve o'clock. People don't want to, you know, wake up at seven and see this long email from me that's about all the changes that I'd like to happen in the book. But we're here to make it as best as we can. So I just, it's, and and the other thing is, I don't like to do it either. No one wants to be up till three in the morning, you know. Everyone w- wants to be able to go to sleep and have a thing, but we're all in this together to make it great so let's just let's just use every single second that we can and when you get people who like that it's a great experience when you work with people who are more allergic to that then it's it for me it's difficult
1: and do you do that throughout your presentations like between your presentations or once you're in presentation like in the festival once you start
3: it's it, it, it well, it depends, I think, partly because of you know also taking into consideration the performer, yeah. you know we can't change the whole second act because you know when can you rehearse it so at that point, that's when you have your kind of list and you kind of go, okay, here are my bullet points, and I think this is going to help the show tremendously i I had spoken to a colleague. Who has a show in the Nymph now, and she'd asked me what would I what should she do? And I said, Well, there's lots to be done and some very exciting work that's gonna happen. But for now, you only have this certain window. So I would do this. And if you can do this, then at least you'll keep that act moving and you won't feel, oh, it's like why are we sitting? So yes, you might want to fix a song and re-choreograph this, but if you can cut 15 minutes out of your first act that's just going to make the piece fly by and then you'll be able to address things later. So um, it's all it's different because sometimes the way the schedule breaks down, you don't have enough time to do some fixes because your next show is tomorrow night.
1: And I would assume that's very different than, say, if you're you know, at MCC or if yes. you're in previews for a yes. real, when you can accomplish, I assume, much more.
3: My, I mean, obviously, when you're in a situation where you have scheduled rehearsal time during previews, then yes, then you have the luxury of... But even then, it's crazy, and even then, the list is very long, and then you're getting a lot of um, uh, feedback from writers and producers and other people, so then that list gets double long, and then which one do you do first? And, you know, and then you have to do what's most important for the show, and... But yes, you you have at least a better opportunity or, or a stronger chance of at least for the performer to own whatever that change is versus you know going down at ten to and you know throwing sheets of paper saying, "Cut this and cut that
2: sure when you 're at an established uh, theater, there is wiggle room i 'll mm-hmm. say perhaps working at a festival like Nymph is really um A a lot of it comes down to your preparation and leading up to sometimes you have a five-hour tech process where you're taking your show that you've rehearsed in the rehearsal hall or various rehearsal halls, depending on uh, how you're able to schedule things, and move it into the space. So there's not a lot of time uh, to reinvestigate staging or blocking so uh, I found that it was very helpful to be in constant communication with the set designer, Mm. with the lighting designer, with the costume designer, so everyone is on the same page as as far as what's going to happen when you move into that space. Um, It all comes down to that sometimes five hours of tech time that you have.
1: Um, So if a friend came to you saying, I'm going to be directing something in in NIMP next year or directing choreographing, what is the advice you would give to them?
2: Gird your loins.
1: (laughs) <laughs> but what should they ha- absolutely have done before they get into rehearsal? Or
2: I think uh, what I was just saying, that sense of preparation, mm. making sure you have a design team that you can communicate with and uh, uh, really feel comfortable uh, rolling through some of the changes that are going to happen, uh, having all of that advanced conversation, uh, having a very a secure ground plan of the mm. theater space that you're going into. Um, Those are just all very basic primary things, but they're all very helpful. It's also helpful to have a producer who is made of dynamite (laughs) and can explode in all of the best ways uh, to help support the vision of the piece and help support everyone who's involved on the creative team. The producer for my piece, Sue Ellen Vance, is extremely capable and extremely supportive and uh, just so... uh, forthright in every decision that she made and it made me feel comfortable and uh, made me feel that I could do my best work. It, it was very helpful. I have no idea what our production would be without that foundation of a solid And was
1: producer. she on the production before you were on, you know, did oh, she yes. come with, okay so she came with yes. the production.
2: She got a, asked, needed a director, called a friend and said, I need a director and who do you recommend? And, She said, call this guy, meaning me, and we met for a cup of coffee a half hour after a phone call, and that's how the ball got started rolling. And it was really having that chance to sit with her, just see her passion for the piece first of all, and knowing that my passion for the piece could match her passion for the piece, and just how forthright she was. I knew that I was in great hands um, uh, for what the demands of the production and the process was going to be. It's great. Producer. I think it's... It, if you have somebody um,
3: there uh, who can support you in all those ways that, you know, is a really important ingredient. Wick and Wedding had... The authors were the producers, so that was a very interesting mm-hmm. kind of... They were playing two roles, and, and the authors were also in the show. So they oh, were wow. in the show, they were, wrote the show, and they produced the show. So that... You know, it all worked out in the end, but uh, it it put a lot of pressure on them because there are times that you just need to talk to the producer and figure out elements or where can we get this or we need a little bit more money for that. And to have someone who can just focus on that is really, really an important
4: ingredient. Mm. Mm. That's
1: great. Um, Okay, so switching out of Nymph, just just getting back to kind of the broader developing musicals, what, uh, uh, what's the biggest challenge in rehearsals when you're developing a new musical piece, do you find? And I'm sure that changes project to project.
2: But. Having a style of communication, I mean, how do you choose the biggest? But one challenge could be a style of communication with um, how things are going to change, how you're going to get notes um, on your work, um, how you're going to share notes to with the... Um, writing team, Mm -hmm. um, just communicating with each other. Uh, uh, um, I have a saying, it's like, oh my gosh, you moved my pencil (laughs) while I was writing, which means like you're in the process of creating something and all of a sudden you get a note and there's a sense of, uh, I wasn't complete with the vision yet, so you're really talking about something that is just a half gesture or an incomplete thought. uh, and likewise i 'm sure for a writer it 's the the same way if you 're talking about their material before they 're mm-hmm. ready for feedback it, it could be sort of an interruption in in their process likewise for an actor, if you give them a note while they 're still processing a scene or something, it could be an interruption in in in, in their work as well so uh, really, how to communicate when the tides are changing so quickly uh, in a developing piece as things should change, um, how to communicate with each other and to make sure you're on the same page and make sure you're being supportive of the piece as a whole and, and, and being mindful of everyone's um, collaborative or creative process mm-hmm. without being precious. Um, but knowing that everyone has, a, I say, like a combination lock, you know, and it's important to give people the tools to win. Um, if, are you the type of director who likes to get all of their notes after the rehearsal process? Are you the type of director who can handle all of those notes in the moment? Can you get them on that 10-minute break and still move forward? And really knowing that about yourself and being able to communicate that to your creative team, I think I call it giving everyone the tools to win because they're going to be supportive of your process and allow you to do your best work in that, in that moment. Yeah.
1: And how do you like to receive notes when you're in a, you know, everybody has somebody who, a friend who asks them to come yeah. and see a show, how do you, rec- I'm sure you're getting notes when you're directing and yeah. choreographing from so many different sources. So oh, how yeah. do you filter them, and how do you, has there been any particular theater that has been really effective in communicating those notes to you?
2: Yeah, I will say, uh, I'll, again, I'll come back to Central Island Breakdown, the thing I was able to articulate with my team. It's like, I'm interested in everything you have to say uh, about my staging, about my storytelling, or how you think I'm interpreting your work. Um, uh, But I'd love to talk about it at the end of the day. Um, I'm gonna be so open to everything you have to say. But while I'm in the mix of it, it's really hard for me to uh, stay completely open. but you know there are always hypocrisies, and you know they'll write something on a piece of paper and slide it over, and I will go, "Oh yes, we need to do this. Let's change course." So of course we're we're all you know the reverse of what we say we are at any given moment. But generally, uh, it, it is sort of a, that time after rehearsal when I can really sit and really be open with you, and I'm not really managing a room, or I'm not really uh, keeping uh, you know 12 actors. Yeah in the air as far as their work. Um, once they've gone home and once I've made that schedule with the, the stage manager for the next day, I'd love to sit and talk about uh, how you think it's going and, and really uh, make sure that we're on the same page. It's valuable time for me, the post-chat. I, I found it very helpful to
3: kind of establish some rules or guidelines or whatever you want to call it um, yeah i've been I've been lucky that i've i've asked I've always asked the authors not to be present during rehearsal mm.
4: um,
3: and but they it, it changes, but if we're doing a scene um, then I love them to be there so we when we do a table read of the scene, they're there to answer questions, to you know uh, inform. But once we're into staging it, whether it's the scene or whether it's choreography, I always like them to go. And, um, <laughs> and they, at least in my experience, they've been, they've been very good about leaving. Um, and actually what it does for me is it allows, when they come back to see it, and sometimes they don't come back for two days and they, they'll see a, a section or you know, if it's a, a big number, sometimes it takes two days to choreograph a big number or to stage it, then when they come to watch that number two days later, they're watching it with fresh eyes, and they're able to articulate constructive criticism based on what we've shown them, Based versus, I love the analogy of the pencil, it's best not to tell me... Mm. I mean, we, we have not you haven't started choreographing yet and already someone's going, oh, I don't think they should have their back to the audience. Well, they don't necessarily know that it's part of a choreographic idea. So the way I kind of spin it for the author is to let them know that when they come to watch a day later, two days later they're going to be actually more valuable for the process and for me to be able to sit there and go, okay, so you've staged all of this, the scene with chairs, everyone facing upstage, and I didn't get it. And I could say, well, didn't you understand that I was doing blah, blah, blah? And they go, no, I couldn't see them, I couldn't see their faces, I felt disconnected. And that actually is good information to know. Even if I went in going, I really feel the scene needs to be staged with everyone's back to the audience, and i thought well it makes sense cuz didn't you see when they all did this and didn't that you know <laughs> and the author's going no i didn't see that so it it so i so i don't have to deal with uh oh, or you know wait or at the 10 minutes can you not do it that way because inevitably we should be able to have the freedom to explore things not only as a choreographer as a director but the actors also might have A brilliant idea about something. So we should be given a kind of safe environment to fall on our face and then have them come and and again I you want them there, the authors, because they it is their work. It is our job in many ways and our responsibility to fulfill their vision, even though it's not always the same. But they get they just have a better perspective on whatever we're doing based on not sitting in that room every minute, watching every single gesture or idea that comes to mind.
1: Um, uh, Let me just see here. What makes for a successful collaboration? What do you guys do to really kind of help
2: that along? I I think I borrow a, a phrase of Susan Laurie Parks, who says, if no one's died, by the time the show is open, it was a successful collaboration. <laughs>
4: um,
2: and maybe, well, I think there is some truth to that. I always think of it like a roller coaster. And uh, when you're with your team, and I say this to my team all the time, uh, you know, sometimes you're going to turn that sharp corner, and you're going to get squished, or I'm going to get squished. Uh, but As long as we're having fun in the process, uh, uh, that means it's a successful collaboration. Um, really, I mean, when you have like all levels of what is deemed successful, like Broadway shows, national tours, regional shows, or a show that is there and and you never see it again, how can you really quantify what success is other than uh, something you mentioned earlier, the sense of like being engaged in the process and being open to learning from the process, either learning something about your style of writing or my style of directing or chore- choreographing, which... Uh, may not mean that that piece is going to rise, but I can take something from that and apply it to some to some other part of my artistry. Um, that to me is a success. When everyone can walk away feeling extremely proud about the project they were a part of or having learned something about themselves, that to me is also a success. Yeah, sure, if it can move to Broadway, that would be awesome. If it can recoup in some way, that would be really, really fantastic. But let's get real, that doesn't really happen all that often for every piece but just because it doesn't happen doesn't mean that that piece wasn't successful so maybe it takes a bit of optimism to really find what the successful moment was but I imagine there is one in every
3: project I think successful collaboration um, happens when the stars align and everyone is um, connected and that very rarely happens and I don't mean that in that there's not good collaborations, but they're you know people are very individual and um, and you know we, we usually collaborate with adults and you know if someone is stubborn in their life they're probably going to be stubborn as an artist mm. if someone is insecure as a woman or a man they're probably going to bring that insecurity to their process, and that it's 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 it, we we cannot. I mean, we can't we can't fix everyone's little you know idiosyncrasies or idiosyncratic you know behavior. So I think that my philosophy is to treat everyone with respect. Whether or not it comes back is beyond my control. Uh, push the artist however far you can in a respectful, loving. Joyful way, and again, sometimes people don't like to be pushed, and people resist being <coughs> pushed. But you can't, you can't change that. So, um, I think if, if you tr- if one tries to create a respectful environment, then hopefully people will align themselves to that kind of that energy that one creates in the room. And sometimes it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. and and. There's nothing wrong with that, and it doesn't make one a bad leader. It just—it's just how do you deal with that kind of, you know, that that kind of behavior? Whether it's a designer or a choreographer or an actor or a producer or a general manager, it, it, there's always there's always you know kind of bumps and speed bumps, and I think it's how do we deal with those speed bumps and not allow those bumps to derail mm-hmm. our journey um, and most importantly not to de- to derail the show mm.
1: Two quick questions for th- at the end and then we'll have some questions from the audience and these are different for you. Christopher How c- you started as a dancer and you switched to choreographer and then transitioned to director choreographer. Can you just talk about what enabled you to make that transition because it's a transition that a lot of people want to make but it's a little bit difficult
2: Yeah for me uh, again it was a-, a lot of that foundation of being a part of that Fosse experience, where I, you know, cut my teeth on a major body of work uh, that really informed my style as a choreographer, uh, as a as a performer, and then people started to notice that oh, he's the kid who dances that style of Fosse, and you know, there's this production of Chicago, and I think he'll be very valuable. Uh, that first little production of Chicago, I started out in Main State Music Theater. Uh, I started out as the assistant. Uh, choreographer. By the time it opened, I was the the associate choreographer and that was building a relationship with the director choreographer, but also proving my mettle, proving my worth, um, really showing up to rehearsal and and really uh, uh, demonstrating what I knew about uh, choreography and the material we were working on. And then from that, that led to, uh, let's face it, a, a lot of theater and a lot of work comes down to relationships, who you know not just necessarily who you know, but uh, who knows you, who knows your work, and who can speak about how you are in the room. And from that experience, I was recommended to another regional theater out in California, Theater Works. They needed a choreographer in two weeks, and could I do it? Sure, I'll do it. I showed up, completely different style, but it was storytelling that um, I was doing with choreography, which is totally my bag of tricks. Um, And so that's how I built my body of work as a choreographer, basically the pinch pinch hitter who could come in and work really quickly to create choreography but also work with an already established group of Mm -hmm. actors. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So that became sort of my calling card. And then from there, uh, again, uh, I started to get recommendations to direct based on how I was in the room and how I was able to work with actors. Like and was that
1: always directing musicals?
2: Uh, that wasn't always directing. It was directing musicals at that point. Yeah. Um, quick little story. The thing that got me into my undergraduate program, I was doing a production of A Chorus Line in St. Louis, Missouri, and there was an actress, a local actress, who said, Christopher, you have so much raw, natural talent as a performer. It'd be a shame for you to miss out on an opportunity because you lack technique. You need training. You need to go to school. And that was the instant where I was like, this is going to be the rest of my life. And that's when I went to Webster University as an undergrad. So when I started to get work as a director, it was that same sort of advice where I was like, oh, there's so much like, raw, natural talent, but I'm just lacking technique, the ability to communicate with actors, the, d- the ability to communicate with designers. I need training, so that's what led me to my grad program. Um, it was also this sense of feeling like, I don't know if I could rehash Oklahoma again and again at Summerstock or Peter Pan or, you know, these are all great musicals, but I knew I could do more. I knew I wanted to do more, but with the skill set that I had, I knew I wasn't going to learn. I knew I wasn't going to learn, and this is just my story, I knew I wasn't going to learn how to direct on the job, out in the field. I knew I had to go somewhere and really learn that skill set and then put myself back into the working world. At graduate school I learned how to read a play. I learned how to communicate with actors. I learned how to get a bunch of people in a room, have a little bit of text, and tell a story. Uh, that was just the foundation of that work. So it was so satisfying to graduate after three years and feel like I could tell a story not only with musicals but with straight plays as well. So uh Today, I would say I'm a big musical theater geek and fan. It is my passion, it is my history, it is my blood, Uh, but it's also satisfying to know that if you gave me a piece of Shakespeare that I could direct that too Um, uh, and do a fantastic job. Um, uh, So that is, uh, you know, that's weird. (laughs) <laughs> shooting the horn but if you know the history of like you know being the quiet, short guy on right. the end yeah. uh, as far as a dancer to come that far
4: yeah.
2: uh, where you can uh, you know I could celebrate every dancer out there who has the ambition to be a director, and you know I feel like my little life is just an example of what is possible, twenty years ago or fifteen years ago, I would have never imagined that. Uh, the quiet one, short guy on the end, would ever have the chance to be a leader and to help people with their artistry and really be a a collaborator and really call people together to tell a story, any story. I never really thought that was possible. So to be able to sit here today, it's kind of like a miracle, Um, uh, but exciting, yeah. That's great, that's great.
1: Um, and, And Stafford, you've really made... You, you've done so much new work over over your career, but that also includes this revisiting and reimagining pieces. Not only, of course, everybody knows here for Carrie, but also for Ragtime. I mean, you did a, you did the first uh, production in London of Ragtime, mm-hmm. correct? After being on the production um, with uh, you know here in New York. Um, and so, how is that a little bit different? And how do you go about reimagining these?
3: Um, you know, I I was very, very lucky with Ragtime, you know, being, uh, being my first job on that show was the, I was assisted Terrence McNally, because I wanted to, um, my, my process before I moved to New York City was, I kind of, almost for 10 years, for a decade of my life, really assisted people, um, worked in various aspects of the theater, whether it was as a receptionist, whether whether it was an internship with a casting office. Um, Vinnie Liff, who was an amazing casting director, um, I interned with him for um, four months. A press office, um, and then when I really wanted to understand how musicals were created, because as a Torontonian all I knew was what came into the O'Keeffe Centre or what kind of, you know, the touring show. And so, and at school, uh, because the musical is not really an indigenous part of our culture, uh, it's not, we don't learn how they're made. So I, I thought the best way to learn would be to assist a writer. And so when I heard that Ragtime was doing a reading in Toronto, I kind of said, I'll assist Terrence uh, for free. And, of course, you know, Garth loved that, so I got the job. <laughs> when, you, when you offer yourself for free, it, it's easy. So uh, it was great because I did that, and then there was another reading, and I assisted Lynn Ahrens because I wanted to understand how lyrics... And I wanted to understand how... what Lynn felt when Terrence wrote a scene that impeded on her lyric. So how did that relationship work? Um, jump cut to when... Um, they, they, call, I, I had inevitably became the resident director of the show and maintained the productions, and then they called me and asked if I was available to go to London, and I said to them, "Well, is Frank, um, Frank Gilardi, who was the original director, is Frank not available?" And he's, and they said, "No, uh, we want you to do your own." Uh, and I said, "What do you mean?" And they said, "We, we want you to take Ragtime, and." Just do what you want to do with it, um, and that was just an extraordinary gift. That you know, that that that's that's just that was a gift from these authors. That basically they they felt that I had given so much to their show since when I first met them. That when this opportunity came up to do it in London, and the producer Sonia Friedman did not want the Broadway production. She wanted, um, you know, a, a, I think a, a British interpretation, a stylized and abstracted, they I think the authors felt well, give it to Stafford and and allow him an opportunity, so taking something that was very uh, in my bones and I understood the show and I understood all of Frank's direction from day one I understood everything about why the piece moved the way it moved the the reasons characters did things so it was a very interesting challenge to distance oneself from that and the the best way to have to have, that I began on that process was to rethink what was the world and how were we going to tell the story and that's where inevitably like you had said the designers became the first ingredient in the collaboration before the choreographer and it was interesting because I had read the novel Doctorow's novel when I was working with Terence and I remember reading this novel and thinking this is too big I don't know how anyone could put this on a stage it is so large um, and of course when you're working on a reading you don't know what's going to happen and of course the you know that Broadway production was large and lavish and stunning and amazing and you know we had 58 people on that stage um, so, but I remember reading this novel and going, if I was to ever do this, I would do this small um, because to me, I wouldn't know how to do it with model T's and swings and moving scenery I would just do it with a small group of actors and so inevitably that idea kind of, kind of was put on a side burner and then when the opportunity arose I thought, well let's look back at this piece and not look at it from a kind of Epic physical world, but from a human perspective. Let's just follow the story of these three families. And so, the idea of doing the show with 16 Bentwood chairs, um, and that a chair could become a Model T, a chair could become Evelyn Nesbitt's swing, um, that, that, you know, even that kind of in my head was like, well, that's what we did when we were in college, right? I mean, when, you, when you're in college, you, you, you take what you have and you, you make a chair, whatever. Same thing with the cast. I remember thinking, we don't need 58 people. We, we could do this with 22. And we could have a group of actors that have, uh, like, you know, um, a uniform costume. Maybe the, the women of New Rochelle would have, you know, a beautiful dress and they'd have a shawl. And they would stand on the stage and hold a parasol and you know from the way they stand that they are of the New Rochelle world. While well, that same woman could take that parasol, put it under her her arm, take the shawl, put it over her head and bec- and it becomes a babushka and she becomes an immigrant. And that kind of idea was very interesting to me. And so that... When I, when I kept thinking of that, I, you know, that was what I wanted to do and then inevitably had to sell it to, you know, Lynn and Stephen and Terence who were not thrilled with it. (laughs) They, they were quite scared actually of this idea. They were scared of the abstraction. They were scared uh, uh, a little bit of, of the minimalism of it. Um, I remember one of them said, well, where's the car? And I said, It's right
4: here. And they said,
3: No, no, but will you have flashlights to be like the headlights? And I said, No, you you have someone sit on a chair and do this and it becomes a car. Um, so it was difficult, but again, all they knew of ragtime was fifty eight people and very big and lavish. So it, it take it it in in any kind of revision. And and you know, that was also an opportunity where we could revise the script. And again, for me, the assistant to Terence going to him and saying, Terrence, would you mind cutting this? I mean I was terrified, but I was been I had been given this opportunity, so why not go in and say, Cut this? Or why not go to Lynn and say, Will you relook at this lyric? And they didn't necessarily agree with everything I had said, but they were open to that possibility. Um, Carrie was a, a very similar experience. Having a very specific idea of how you want to relook at a piece and feeling confident about that take and pitching it to an author or authors is, um, is risky and doesn't always come out the way you want it because a lot of times we don't get the job. But I think if you have a very specific vision and an idea... And you can sell it, um, then hopefully they'll say okay. And then the journey of going back to a piece like Ragtime or Carrie or Bear, then it takes you know. Then you have to make sure that everyone on board is really, really ready to do that. Mm-hmm. And and that's something that luckily for Ragtime and for Carrie and currently with Bear, that the authors have been very open to that. Kerry w- wouldn't have happened if I met with them and they had said, no, we want it to be the way it was. You can redesign it and re-choreograph it, but we're not changing the script. If they had said that, then that meeting, would've, we would have stopped and it probably wouldn't have happened. And that's a risky thing, right? Because you think to yourself, oh my gosh, you're in the room with the authors of Carrie, it's happened, you're actually sitting there, but honestly... If they had said no, we're not changing one word. Then what would be the point of doing it? Right. It, it exists on YouTube. It exists on DVD and videotape with those bootlegs. So if that's what people wanted, then I would rather that just have its life and not and not just regurgitate it with a new design or a new. And that's hard. That it takes. It's a, it, it's an interesting thing. You know, mm-hmm. we we are all. Uh, there's a duality in all of us. We're incredibly confident in many ways, and we have an idea and a vision, but sometimes can be incredibly insecure at the same time. Really me, I have the right to say to someone who has... I remember I was sitting in Michael Gore's um, office, and there was an Oscar right next to him. And, And I kept looking at that Oscar and looking at him and thinking, now... Obviously, that Oscar was one for fame it wasn 't one for Carrie, but how can I sit there and you know give him a piece of constructive criticism when he has an Oscar on his mantle <laughs> now that of course is silly because it 's just an, it 's it's an Oscar it, but you know but there is that insecurity inside of us that feels you know but you know i 've learned that you have to kind of conquer that and just go in and just say, "Look, this is my idea." Someone was asking me earlier about. Carry and the blood and you know for those of you who saw it I didn't use any liquid blood in Carrie and that was a very specific choice that I had made prior to even going into meeting with the authors I did not want to use one piece of liquid in in that prom moment and that was a choice and many people thought it was the wrong choice many people thought it was a stupid idea terrible director what is that those boards the chat board thing you know like he's stupid he's terrible he's destroyed the show but you know in the end we make choices as directors that inevitably not everyone is going to appreciate or understand and going into a meeting pitching an idea like that to an author or to a producer you have to have the confidence to say this is what I want to do you don't know maybe Dean and Larry and Michael would have said to me well that's stupid we, we, we want liquid. We, we wanted you to be the director to figure out how to make that destruction work. And because you've now come in with this answer of no blood, goodbye, we're going to find someone else. But you don't know. So you just have to go in with the confidence and the conviction and hopefully it'll all work out. I don't know if I answered your question. No, you did. <laughs> very interesting.
1: Um, we have time for a couple of
4: questions. if there's uh, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um sort of what you were talking about from a different angle, once you got the job keeping it, um, how, what's the care and feeding of that relationship so that, and where's the line in the sand where you go, you know what, no, I'm not going to go forward with this. Well,
3: the, uh, the line in the sand is if, it, if in the end the authors say, if you, you come in and you have an idea, now it's different if it's a revisal. If it's a revisal, you're coming in saying, I feel that the show should go in this direction. If they say no, then I think that's the line in the sand. If it's a brand new piece, then hopefully by the time you go through all these discussions, you'll know that you're on the same page. You might not be always simpatico, but you at least will know, okay, we we're, we want to tell the same story. To keep the job is doesn't always happen. I worked on a show... Uh, called Ace for a number of years. It had its world premiere in St. Louis. Uh, we then took it to the Cincinnati Playhouse. We then took it to the Old Globe in San Diego. And as a result of those productions, I was let go after the the, uh, the San Diego productions. And that's the way it is. Is it hurt? Yes. Is it a nice thing? No. But it's the biz. And And... I can't stand here and or sit here and say to you, oh it doesn't hurt or who cares. Of course it hurts. one wants to be able to continue with the show. But inevitably one has to also understand that this is a business. It's called show biz, not show friends. And <laughs> inevitably decisions are made that might not always work. And sometimes they don't work for a myriad of reasons and might not be just me, it might be someone else, it might be this, it might be some producer comes in and says, we want this person to, because they have 10 Tony Awards or something. There's many reasons. So to keep the job, I think inevitably just stay true to your vision. And if inevitably that vision is not jiving with the authors and there is a kind of difficulty, then I guess at some point either you leave or they at some point say we want to
2: move on with someone else. I don't know if that that's probably not the greatest answer. That's I say when you have four aces in your hands, you'll know what to do. Um, let me elaborate. As a young dancer, sometimes you have to kick in a line that is not really to your standard or to your taste. So, in a way, you have to negotiate is this an opportunity that could lead to another opportunity, or uh, do I have the funds, the resources, or whatever to say no to this, um, uh, then you'll know what to do. I mean, I guess I'm speaking very specifically from my point of view. I'm at a, at a phase where every opportunity is like a golden opportunity for me. If I don't happen to understand quite why a decision is going to pay, play out or why uh, the playwright wants to see this, um, I may have to humble myself and say, hey, let's make your vision work, knowing that this may be the stepping stone to the point where I get to say, I want to do this. So that's also knowing yourself and where you are in your career. Not everyone can play the big hands at at any given time. Um, Hi, uh, you mentioned a
4: wonderful producer, Swell and Dance. How do you suggest directors find wonderful producers? Is there, I mean, I did a three stage readings on this last thing. And my writers were the producers and they were going berserk. And I tried to bring in some producers. I got maybe one or two a lot cancelled last minute. But is there a, a good place to meet, find good producers who are like that supportive, enthusiastic type?
2: Sure, down. just kidding. I have no <laughs> <either. laughs> um, that's a great Great question, and uh, it is going to come down to the relationships that you already have. It's a matter of like putting out phone calls and asking around. I'm sure these are things that y- you've already done, but it is digging a little bit deeper. Who do you know that could introduce you to someone who knows someone else? Um, unfortunately, great producers don't grow on trees, so you have to really count on your existing relationships, your friends, your other collaborators. And yes, it may not be easy and they may not pop up right away. It may take like three, five, 10, 20 phone calls so you find that great producer, but they're out there and uh, there will be someone who's a match for you. Um, But I would say just begin by making those emails and sending those emails and and making those phone calls and and telling people what you need and being specific about what you need because uh, when you're very clear with uh, with anything I mean, you're very clear with whoever you're talking to about what you're looking for their minds will open up and start putting their feelers out kindness helps too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. network network as much as you can and
3: also always remember that producers love a great idea
4: mm-hmm.
3: no matter where it comes from no matter where it comes from so if you had an idea and you wanted to knock on someone's door even if you thought well this is a producer he he does only or she does big broadway things they wouldn't you know who knows try it what 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 what, what are you going to lose by trying to meet with whoever it is and say i have an idea to do a musical about cats based on a poem or something i mean you know what i'm saying i mean so you never know uh, what crazy idea you might think someone might you know latch onto it. And you also know by going to enough theater to kind of see what kind of producers are producing certain kinds of shows. There are certain producers who have a tendency to produce certain shows, whether it's musicals or plays or themes within that, those pieces, and write them. Go to get yourself into an opening night party. There are so many people who can get, you know, just go to that party and find that person and pull on their, you know, tuxedo, you know, belt or whatever and talk to them. The worst that could happen is they could say, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. The best that could happen is, here's my card, come and meet with me next week and let's talk. And they might give you five minutes, but that five minutes could change your entire life.
2: And it may be someone who has no. And not a big body of credentials, but a lot of capability and ambition, and that may be a great start, too. You'll actually
3: find a lot of amazing producers in training who work at large producing companies. They usually are the assistants or the associates or sometimes even just you know people answering the phones. And they're chomping
2: at the bit for a project that they can call their own. Yes.
1: And they sometimes have access to other resources. They, they know some top designers through that work. Yes. That's very true. Um, we have time for one more
0: We're back there.
2: So uh, something really wasn't addressed that much. What, uh, what do you look for in the great Like If you're hiring an assistant, what's something you look for as a great category?
3: Um, I guess someone who uh, is one step ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. I, I, because I assisted for a long time, this is where I'll toot my horn. I, I thought I was a really good assistant, I because I really understood my my place. I understood that I was not the director. I understood that I was there to serve the director, uh, and if that meant the coffee, if it meant having the script open before he or she came in and had the page open to the scene we were doing, I, I was that was what I always did. I wasn't. I kept quiet, um, and I also knew that this journey with that director or whatever was going to be just one part of a very long journey I, I you know when I when you when I meet with young assistants and I will say something like oh I assisted for ten years their mouth gapes open <laughs> they, they can't believe that you, you mean you didn't start directing after you did your three-month internship and, and the answer is no I mean it it, it it it's just for me it was a very different process I, I felt it was like a full-time job for 10 years, even as a resident director, I was still an assistant. It's fancy titles, right? But it's basically, you're not the director. You're either putting someone else's vision up or maintaining someone else's vision or getting someone coffee, but just, you're not the director. So to understand that role is a humbling thing. and, And I find that sometimes people don't get that. And, and their enthusiasm and eagerness um, is, is sometimes gets the best of them. And that doesn't mean that an assistant should sit in the corner and keep their mouth shut. No, absolutely not. They should feel part of that collaborative process but sometimes it's hard for a young person to go and, I don't drink coffee so it doesn't matter, but to go get coffee you know, no one wants to be the coffee boy or the gopher but Sometimes that's part of the journey. And sometimes it's part of the journey for that assistant to get up and help the stage manager move the set around or sweep the floor. I I did that all the time. I just wanted to do everything. I just wanted to be a part of everything. But always kept my mind on that individual I was assisting and just making sure that for him it it ran like a smooth ship.
1: And you assisted Frank Galati, as you said, and Hal Prince. I, yes,
3: I assisted Hal on *Showboat* in Toronto, and uh, on a project uh, at the Public Theater called *The Petrified Prince*. But Michael John Accusa wrote many years ago. Frank Galati on *Ragtime*, and uh, Mike Ockrent, who directed the original *Crazy for You*, um, he came up to Toronto to do the the Toronto production. So I had assisted him because Stro- uh, Susan Stroman worked on Showboat and she was married to Mike at the time and so she said would you assist him and then I worked with uh, Nick Heitner on the Canadian production of Miss Saigon when it was up there so very four very different men and very different needs but um, learned an incredible amount uh, by just watching uh, like a you know like young people like a sponge right you just soak it all up and and you learn from from that.
2: Yeah, never be too humble to get that cup of coffee because uh, really it's a chance to build relationships with someone. They really know how you are as a person just by how you take their order. They're really getting to learn something about you. I think one of the best compliments I got as an assistant was when someone said, You're good. You're quiet. (laughs)
4: <laughs>
2: meaning every project's going to be different but uh, it is knowing when your voice is going to be helpful and when it's going to actually interrupt or push someone's pencil um, it, 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 it's really having a sort of the foresight or the, uh, the understanding of how you're going to fit into uh, the process every process will be different but I think the mantra as an assistant and as something I, I would hope to find in, in or hope that my assistants have is that sense of my job is to make my boss look good. Um, So then what you do just really kind of falls into place when you want them to be at their best and you want them to do their best work. In turn, even as a director, I have that thought. My job is to make my producer or whoever, my collaborators look good. It takes kind of the responsibility off of me and who I am and what do I need to do. and it really opens me up to be available to a bigger part of my artistry and my process. It's very gener- generous thought I think.
1: Well, thank you both for being here. Tonight. Thank, you.
0: thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades of representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.